Welcome to The Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. We're your hosts. Today, we are going to introduce you to disability theology. And we're doing that beginning with one of the foundational classics of the field, The Disabled God, toward a liberatory theology of disability with written by Nancy Eastland. over to you, Stephanie, but just very briefly, Nancy Eastland wrote this as her master's thesis, and it was published in 1994. And is really, I think, fairly broadly understood as one of the first works of disability theology. Yeah, um, I have heard people repeatedly talk about it as sort of a foundational text um, of disability theology, certainly in the United States, um, and certainly since the disability rights movement, so disability justice movement. And unfortunately, it was not necessarily um, the beginning of a flowering of disability and theology writing. Um, It is still one of not many. Yeah, it is not a huge area of published books. There's some work out there that's not published in a book format, but in terms of the more accessible corners, this is, it's it's a short shelf. Right, exactly. We are starting to see, at least I am, and I'm not sure if it's because I'm paying attention more, but I'm starting to notice um, a little bit more writing and discussion that's coming into the mainstream conversation in the church, um, but not necessarily in theological books or in, in book format. So um, to give you an example, the Episcopal Church publication Earth and Altar has been making what looks to me to be a real intentional effort to include articles about disability. I'm really hoping we're going to get some of those authors on the podcast. I was re- reading and rereading because I've read large sections, but not all of it. I've now read a larger section. <laughs> Uh, I focused on the parts I thought we were going to talk about today. Um, and I noticed time several times she makes comments like, this work is not going to do that because it, it was a master's thesis. It's not like an extensive compendium of disability justice and disability theology. Uh, and she'll say, so I'm not going to do that, but I hope someone else will. And sometimes I'm like, someone else finally did. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't know that anyone is actually doing that yet. Right. Yeah, it's it is a beginning. Um, it's a good foundation. It's certainly something that if you want to know more about disability and the liberation theology, take on disability, um, disability theology, I should say, it is a book you need to read. It's a, probably the first book you need to read. Um, but it is really only it is really only a beginning. I also want to take that this is maybe not the book to hand to someone who is recently disabled. Or has it yeah. a new diagnosis? Because it, it is, um, it is the parts of it we're not going to talk about, talk about disability justice and advocacy history and sociology. And it, it can be a bit of a slog if you do not love that. But yes. if you work with people 
and work with anywhere that where faith and disability overlap a lot, it's probably worth poking your way through. Yes. And there are bits of it that don't really hold up because it is from 1994, but plenty, it, it does hold up, you know, as well as could possibly be expected. Lots of it holds up. And a lot of it was way ahead of its time. Um, and, you know, I was thinking when I was looking over my notes for the book, I was thinking, you know, we did not cover that in seminary. I was actually about to ask you to share where you first encountered this book. So I told us, and that's a great question, Robin. Thank you. Um, I told a story in our second episode about how in seminary, in a class on Christian ethic, I was in a group that presented actually on this book and on disability in the church. And it was the first time I'd ever really publicly spoken about disability um, in front of my classmates as opposed, you know, as opposed to like private conversations, but in a, in a class uh, setting or a presentation type setting. And I was not the one who found the book. It was actually a colleague of mine who was part of the presentation group that found the book and um, actually really read it and explained the basics of disability theology to the class. That was the first time I ever encountered it. Um, the, Robin and I went to the same uh, seminary, as we've mentioned before, and where we went to seminary was very committed to sort of what I would call the sort of the classics, like the foundations of the little O Orthodox, the Orthodox um, Christian faith and Anglican tradition, and really didn't um, cover some of the other perspectives. So we didn't talk about disability theology in any way. We didn't extensively cover other kinds of liberation theology or other points of view, womanist theology, queer theology, just being an example. Um, I recently learned also that there, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of theology that groups uh, have now been writing and reflecting. not talk about. That we never talked about. There's... Um, I just picked up a book on Palestinian liberation theology, right? We didn't talk about these things. So chances are, you know, if you're listening to this, you may not have either. So um, this was, again, this is all new to me, even as a person with a disability, completely, it was completely new when I first heard it in the, you know, in 2000, whatever that was, 2008, 2009. Um, and I picked, I picked it up again recently. We're skipping sort of chapters one to three, because that's the terms, that's the lived experiences, that's the sociology, that's the history. And we're going to talk about the disability theology sections in four, five, and six. Um, and I got there this time, and I was like, I wish the first time I had picked this up, I had been like further into my you don't have to read a book cover to cover journey, you can just start in the middle if that's the relevant section. Um, it's really good stuff in the first part, but what I needed the first time I found this book starts in chapter four. Right. And I think that her unique contribution um, is, mo is most found in that section. I mean, the things that she says before that are said in a lot of other places because she's coming at it from looking at it from partially the secular point of view, looking at the sociology and the statistics and the legislation and all that. Um, but where it really gets interesting is where she, when she does a lot of this work um, around yeah. 
the history of, you know, not the, not history per se, but the tendencies of the church around disability and how we can look at some of the core tenets of Christian faith um, through the lens of disability. Yeah. And I don't, I, I completely understand why that first part is there. It's the context for everything that happens. And she's writing uh, a very contextual theology. So she needs that. But if this is your lived experience, you to some extent already know that context. One place it might be um, really good to start as far as her discussion of the theology is to talk about the ways, and she says there are three ways in which the church understands disability. Yes, these would be like the three, I think the words I would use, they're not the words she uses precisely, would be the three sort of traditional and problematic ways. That is sin and disability conflation. Um, And we've alluded to that before, and we will talk about that more, especially when we get to some sections where we talk about disability in the Bible and how that is viewed as disability as a sign of sin. That's not precisely what the Bible says. It is more complicated, but that is that concept that the church has hung on to is a lot of is what she's referring to there. Virtuous suffering, which is my, if I was going to rank these, these, this would be my like personal least favorite. I was going to say, yeah, this is Robin's favorite. And by favorite, we mean she hates it more than all the others. Mm, Yes. So virtuous suffering is an idea that I still encounter regularly. Drives me up the wall every time I have not reached any sort of like place of Yeah, no, where um, you'll hear that this is not what I believe. You'll hear this talked about, though, as in your suffering, you become like Christ in his suffering, and therefore your suffering brings you closer to God, which is what's really harmful. Suffering is and pain are not good. They are signs there is a problem. Eastland describes them actually this this concept of this, you know, redemptive suffering or virtuous suffering um as actually she uses the word dangerous for the disabled she's not um mincing words here the word dangerous she's right and she says it encourages and i'm obviously paraphrasing excessively um she says that it encourages acceptance of poor treatment of injustice it encourages people to be passive, um, and basically tells them that they're dealing with suffering in this life because somehow it will help them get rewards in the afterlife. I am shaking my head so hard because I have nothing I can add to that. But yes, all of that is true. And the thing about... Um, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So there's a great book um, by Elena Scarry scary spelled with two R's called the body in pain, where she talks about the experience of pain as through the lens of torture um, and how pain is isolating. And it separates you from everyone, including in the specific cases she's talking about of torture from your torture, even though that's your only connection. And I think that's some useful understanding to bring to this concept of virtuous suffering. Like it isolates you, even as you are being told it is for the good of your faith, it isolates you from the, the church community and the faith community. I think one of the keys to this particular issue is that 
you can find meaning in things that you go through in life. Um, but nobody else gets to decide how that meaning making goes for you. And there doesn't have to be meaning. Sometimes yeah. things are just awful. You are not required to be, you know, to find redemption in your suffering or to find some kind of meaning or, or, or whatever, you know, sometimes things, yep. sometimes things are just terrible and that's it. And it's, if you want to, if, if, if somehow down the line, you see it in a different way, that's okay. But that's not for other people to, to try to, to tell. To prescribe. An and I think one of the ways we get into a lot of trouble in this is that I definitely know people who have come through terrible things and we'll talk beautifully about how that was terrible and they have found deep and important meaning in that. But when someone is in the middle of great suffering and pain, trying to explain to them that that is what will definitely happen, because it might or it might not happen, does divorce us from that, separates us from that person in suffering and separates them from us. I'm thinking of Job and how his friends were doing really well. They came and they sat with him and then they started talking and it all went downhill because <laughs> yes. they tried to find meaning in his suffering. To, to do what we often, so often as humans do to sort of make themselves feel better. Yeah. It, it brings us comfort because your suffering discomforts me and it should, but sort that out on your own time. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Share with someone else outside of the situation. Yep. And then the third one is segregationist charity. And then this is probably my I say this is going to be Stephanie's least super pet peeve. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is my my big, the one. It's my favorite, and by that I mean I hate it the most <laughs> of of the three. So I'll give the brief description, and then you can talk about why it's terrible. So segregationist charity um, talks about how the church and faith communities have historically given money, built hospitals, built institutions to help people with disabilities. But in doing that, we have moved them away from the community of faith. So we have been very kind and generous to those people we have kept over there. Right. This is about individualized acts of charity, apart from, I would say, apart from any power analysis or understanding of systemic injustice. And increasingly apart from any conversation with people with disabilities. Right. This is very... Um, very much about things that serve to make the able-bodied people feel virtuous, like they're doing a good thing. Um, this is kind of adjacent to what we've um, mentioned briefly before, uh, inspiration porn, the thing where you yes, there's watch a, a video of some poor disabled person having some wonderful thing happen to them. And it's just to make you feel emotion, some kind of emotion, or to make you feel really good for supporting that cause, or perhaps to make you feel that, gosh, I need to count my blessings because I could be little Timmy getting a wheelchair accessible van, um, but I'm not, right? So I feel like it's adjacent to all that, uh, those that yeah. kind of mess. Um, but this is, yeah, the opportunity for charity as opposed to people being part of the community, as opposed to being in conversation with people. Um, and this also, I would say, encompasses all the situations where people decide what 
disabled people need without asking them um, and, and sometimes not even listening to them when they're told. A lot of it comes down to not listening um, and being more interested in feeling good about doing some sort of charitable act than understanding what people need. Um, and it also comes down to making everything individualized rather than looking at uh, systemic injustice. Well, and being really grounded in relationship and community, which grieves me particularly in the church because our whole thing is being in community with God and one another. And all of these things, all three of these things, like you talked about before, when you talked about um, suffering, you know, somehow being required by certain people to be redemptive, all of these things just shut people out of of the community going. I just want to go back for a second um, to this conflation of sin and disability. One of the ways that this shows up because, so the reason I bring this up is um, I'm sure most people listening, most of us would say, Oh my gosh, well, I'm not walking around saying this disability happened because of sin. I mean, that's, that's really barbaric. I wouldn't say something like that. But let's say that most of us listening to this are never would never say that. We're not thinking that. But there are other ways of um, of sort of saying that. For example, refusing to use the terms for disabilities that people ask you to use. Refusing to use the microphone when you're speaking in a large room. Exactly. Refusing to discuss disability, refusing to use the word disability, acting like it's dirty. But that's a way of saying it. That's a way of saying that somehow you think something is wrong, like somebody did something bad without saying that somebody did something bad. I'm going to say something that is going to make people mad. Go for it. A lot of the phrases clergy use in the best of intentions to make worship more accessible, these rise of ables, stand and body your spirit, all of that is actually doing this because you are still prescribing a normative action and then saying like, well, if you need to do something else, you can do it, but we'll all know. Yeah. And when we get to the Eucharist, we're going to talk about that a little more, I think. Yeah. We'll talk, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that whole thing more another time, but I have opinions Um, Okay, so those are the three huge themes she identifies in the church. Um, And clearly we could, I don't think we're going to, but we could spend a lot of time talking about each of those. We'll return to them as concepts in other conversations. I am quite sure. (laughs) Quite sure. I think so. Probably, certainly. Um. And clearly, just based on our our personal experienced levels of passion for these, um, they are still alive and well. She wrote this almost 30 years ago now. Yeah, almost. Um, And even conversations about them, I find anytime I, I engage in one of those, I just take a deep breath and say a prayer and wonder if I should put all my accounts on lockdown. Because it's still hugely contentious in my experience of the church. I've run across ableist language, ideas, concepts, et cetera, um, in church universe all the time. 
And I'm constantly doing a calculation of, do I say something or do I just go on with my day? Because I don't know that I have the energy to say something every time it comes up. And this is something we just heard about in Pat. He, He goes through the same thing. And I would extrapolate that most service dog owners do too. Like, do I fight with you about my legal access to this space or do I not? And I know we both know it happens all over in disability communities. This is what I loved. I think maybe the most for myself, it was what I needed the most, her discussion of the disabled God, which is where the whole book derives its name. Eastland talks about wanting to create uh, or to at least start a liberatory theology of disability. And in doing so, um, she says that we have to remake and redefine uh, terms and symbols so that they are grounded in the body, incarnational. Um, mm-hmm. So she talks a bit about the, uh, and I, I just thought about this a lot. She talks about the transformative nature of the cross as symbol. So we all talk about this a lot. If we're preachers in the Christian tradition, um, I actually am a priest in charge of a church called Church of the Holy Cross. We just had our paternal feast day. So I've just talked about this a lot. We're recording this in September. Um, So we talk a lot about the conversion of the cross from a symbol of curse and torture and suffering and isolation into a symbol of life and resurrection. It's a conversion that is an ongoing conversion because the church has not always done well with that. Right. So she talks about the, uh, the cross and the image of God on the cross as being and a God that's wounded and resurrected and remains wounded as being um, liberatory for people with disabilities. So here is, a, it's a little long, but um, it's, she does, a, she has this whole section where she talks about the woundedness of Christ and contextualizing that in the context of disabled bodies that are also not perceived as normal. Um, And this is the closing paragraph from that. Here is the resurrected Christ making good on the incarnational proclamation that God would be with us, embodied as we are, incorporating the fullness of human contingency and ordinary life into God, and presenting his impaired hands and feet to his startled friends. The resurrected Jesus is revealed as the disabled God. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, calls for his frightened companions to recognize in the marks of impairment their own connection with God, their own salvation. In so doing, this disabled God is also the revealer of a new humanity. The disabled God is not only the one from heaven, but the revelation of true personhood, underscoring the reality that full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability. 
How many places have you been in, Stephanie, where this concept that full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability? How many how many places is that actually true? Uh, <laughs> I was say maybe in my house when it is just like my spouse and I. I mean, that I mean public places. So I'm really I'm 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 being a little bit slow to answer because I'm actually digging around and thinking. Um, very few. Yeah. Very, very few places. I can think of some social settings. Um, you know, when you hang out in a social setting with other disabled people, that's an example. Um, and it's not spoken, right? We don't talk like that when hanging out with no. friends from a bunch of different places and industries and backgrounds, right? Like you're not talking like that, but that's what the experience is. But yeah, it's not, there have been very specific places and times that felt like that, but they're kind of few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. It, it blows my way away that she was writing this in 1994. Not only that in 1994, because it's like four years after the Americans with Disabilities Act passes, like it's not the genesis of disability activism, but it's very early in it too. And she could like claim that as a dream and a goal and a truth that should be. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking again, I'm thinking back to, and I'm, I'm digging in my brain for in both secular and for both secular and, you know, church related um, environments. I'm thinking back to the summer of 1991. I talked about it in episode two, the, where I spent a month at Drew University with other mm-hmm. visually impaired and blind students um, who were considered quote, college bound, right? That we were all, that was determined that we were in that category. Um, And that's one of the things about that summer that was so freeing and so confidence building was the feeling of deep, uh, I can't think of a better word, normalcy, um, because you were among peers and living on this college campus and just getting to be teenagers. But even there, and this is a secular setting, but even there, Part of why you were there, you weren't just there to have fun. You were also there because college was going to mean having a lot of skills and advocating for yourself. And they really wanted us to be prepared. So there was a lot of work they were doing with us Um, because there was a world that we were going to be entering into. You know, we were going to be growing up, going away to college, and it was, there were a lot of skills we were going to need to survive. So you don't, you couldn't escape it, right? It wasn't an escapist thing. It was, this is delightful for many reasons, but also you've got to figure out how you're going to do research papers, how you're going to handle this, how you're going to handle that um, away from home without the supports that many kids were used to. But that's one place I think of. Another place I think of is um, the parish I grew up in. Mm. Um, School was rough for me often. I was, um, certainly the only kid with low vision in my elementary school um, and school could be really hard. Um, and there was a lot of bullying and a lot of wrangling with about accommodations and things like that. Um, my, 
the parish I grew up in was really accepting in a lot of ways, really, really accepting. And, you know, I got to do all the things and I got, I was an acolyte from that as long, you know, as soon as I was old enough to do that. And I just kind of was me and everybody was just like, yeah, that's Stephanie. That's, it was, you know, it was always a person for, I was just me. Right. I was just me. I was just part of, I was part of the community. I always, always felt part of the community in the, in the parish in which I grew up. Having said that, when I talk about um, the lectionary and different stories about healing and disability coming around in the lectionary. That's the parish I'm talking about. And I would sit and kind of cringe because, oh gosh, I know this is going to be preached incorrectly, at least from my point of view as a disabled person. And we had a wonderful priest and it was a wonderful community, but it still wasn't sort of aware, I guess, about that. So it's all, it's, it's complicated. There's nowhere that really meets that, that paragraph that lives up to that paragraph that I I can't think of of anywhere either. I mean, like you, I can think of a few places that came close, but also struggled in really important ways that I was very aware of being in them. I can also think of a lot of conversations I've had with people who are like, oh, you should go do this. I'm like, no, that has all the signs of being a really ableist space. And I am not going to do that to myself. And I'm not advocating for that as sometimes the right choice is to go be in the space that is not yet welcoming, but also like that was the boundary I drew. And, and I remember having people who are really puzzled about that. image of the disabled God and Eastland in particular talks about a vision of the disabled God as a human being who is quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. And she cites that as a vision. She's using yes. religious language around that. And you know what I was thinking when she said that I was thinking about um, how there have been a number of different images of, of either of God or of the crucified Christ or something like that, um, that are representative of different marginalized group you know what i thought of immediately it's our discussion with Lindsay in episode three because she talks about jesus as neurodivergent oh that's yes yes i thought of the um of the big controversy around the piece of art called the krista that was at the cathedral saint john the divine i don't know if it's still on display or not but it's a crucifix with a um, with a female body, Jesus. Which is a really historic way of talking about, I mean, it's Julian of Norwich who talks about Jesus, our mother. Right. And there was a huge uh, controversy around it and, and around it hanging, um, not in sort of an art gallery setup, but instead as the cross in one of the chapels. Um, and I thought I thought about that, and I thought about what would the reaction be to a the quadriplegic God, or you know, got some other visible representation of disability 
because there's so much backlash against that. I mean, even in some circles, even just depicting Jesus as a first century Jew is a problem. problematic. Problematic. Well, Catherine Jefford Shorey, while she was presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, got in massive trouble, I think, because she was in England and preached drawing on that same Julian Jesus, our mother image. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, that's not yes. just some that's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal well, Church. People act like people act like she had made it up. Right? Yeah. Like she just created some brand new heresy which one that's impressive if you can do that and two no right yeah they acted they acted like that had never been a thing before no one had ever heard of it it hadn't been said and so I think about that when when I think about Eastland and her reimagining of Jesus as the disabled or God as the disabled God or the disabled Christ and how she talks about the imago dei the image of God is the disabled body. I feel like she talks about the backlash she has gotten. Um, yeah, she, she does at the end of this is we're in, we're, we've, we're not giving, we're trying not to do a book report. So we aren't giving you like yeah. <laughs> page numbers for all of this. Um, but yeah, we're, this is a lot of the stuff she covers in chapter five. And at the end, she talks about, um, the numerous objections she heard to this whole concept of a disabled God because it's too much of a challenge to the power structures we have assumed are correct. Paraphrasing greatly there. Right. The, the thing that is funny, I mean, not actually amusing, but sort of funny odd about that is that to me, this whole thing this the what Christ is about to me is about challenging power structure powers and principalities evil all kinds of things that destroy people that hurt people that marginalize people like that's I think to me that's what this whole project is about yeah so I tend to think that not I, I tend to wonder if they not only are those people objecting um to the disabled God, they're just missing the whole book. I feel like they're missing the boat on the whole thing. Yeah. That's like super judgmental of me, but that's what it feels like. It feels like they're missing the whole thing of this incarnate human being being tortured to death. And, and then God saying, you know what, that's not the end of the story. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. (laughs) Um, she has a line at the very end of this, um, and I'm pulling us there deliberately because she does Mm -hmm. spend a little bit talking about sacraments and we are both Anglican Episcopal type people. So we want to talk about the sacraments too. (laughs) Um, but she sort of wraps this up with this really beautiful, um, it's like a two sentence sort of conclusion but i really just want to read the last sentence of this because i think this is the heart of the theology she's talking about this god meaning this disabled god enables both a struggle for justice among people with disabilities and an end to estrangement from our own bodies um and if that is not the promise of salvation right there, 
and the call of the kingdom of God. I, I don't, I don't think I could get that down to one sentence that <laughs> neatly. Right. Um, just as a tag, because I, I can hear the voices that I would raise. She does deliberately identify that disability justice requires justice for all people. Um, if you are around the disability justice movement now, you will know that things like climate change are tagged as a disability justice movement. Um, so it yes. is, we're not trying to silo there. We're trying to broaden. So um, more time than we have for this, but yes, I just I, I to just, say that. Yes. Yes. I, I, I just, I know. I just want to jump in for one second. I have this, this overwhelming desire to say this thing. Um, so go for today, it. Today is, uh, as we're recording this, um, is the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Occupy Wall Street movement in, uh, yes. started in New York City and spread around the globe. And I was part Which of was, that. It was transformative for you. It was deeply transformative. In the best and worst it, meanings of that. Exactly. Yes, actually. Um, and and the, the reason I wanted to talk about that is because Robin's talking about everything being all the concerns and issues um, being interconnected. Eastland talks about that. She talks about interdependence and mutual care being part of this, this um, the, the things that define the disabled God. It's not an overcoming, a God that's about the overcomer God, but it's a, a God that survives and leads us into interdependence and mutual care. And in Occupy, they always said, everybody thinks the most important slogan is we are the 99%. Well, that's the slogan that sort of was the thing the media picked up on. The most important slogan of Occupy was all our grievances are connected. Mm, all our yeah. grievances are connected. And it is that it was at Occupy and particularly Occupy Sandy when we were doing hurricane relief, that I learned about the concept of mutual aid. The concept of mutual aid isn't, I'm so sorry this bad thing happened to you, you poor pitiful person, but I will bestow my charity on you. The concept of mutual aid is that we are all interdependent. Today you have some needs and I have some resources and I will do my best to share them. Tomorrow it's likely to be the other way, but we are all in a community of care. And, I and just want to second that with two comments. One, if you go to our website, we have a link in our resources page to disability justice resources and mutual aid is at the core of a lot of that as a sustaining movement. And two, Acts talks about how the early church gathered, sold everything, held all things in common and gave to one another as they had needs. Yes. yes. That is I, mutual aid. And occasionally in life on this earth, we are blessed to see that for a brief time and humans aren't good at holding that together for too, too long, but occasionally we are blessed to see that lived out well in person. And, um, I've seen it and I pray that you find opportunities to see it. Yeah. Um, when you can see that everything. And I, I have seen it and I have experienced it very rarely, but it is transformative. Um, so speaking of transformation and that which is transform transformative, um, maybe it's a good time to talk about sacrament. Yes. So um, there is another podcast called The Accessible God that talks about this. And I will put a link to that episode in the liner notes for this episode because it is well worth a listen. I just wanted to identify that we, as we will say, 
often enough you will know this very well, um, are in that Anglican Episcopal tradition. Um, so we have all the sacraments and then other things that are sacramental. Um, we are not going to talk about all the sac- That would be like a whole episode, which maybe we should do at some point in time because... We'll add it to the list. We'll add it to the list. <laughs> if anyone wants to come talk to us about sacrament and disability and faith, uh, send us an email. Please email us. We'll exactly. schedule that real fast. Yes. But yeah, but I think Rob, I, Robin, I'm so glad that you remembered that because I made a mental note to mention and I forgot. Um, definitely go and visit our brothers in the Methodist church over at the Accessible God. Um, they have some really wonderful things to say on this in particular, but about disability in general. Yes. I really love both that it's two men because disability spaces for a bunch of reasons tend to be really feminine spaces. They aren't disability is not a feminine thing, but um, there's a whole thing we're not going to get into there. But I also love that it's two Methodists because they have their own perspective which is delightful. So sacraments. She talks specifically about, I think, Eucharist and laying on of hands. I'm drawing on some old memories here. Yeah, there was just a lot in the uh, to talk about with Eucharist. And Eucharist is it's important in so many Christian traditions, but it is absolutely central in the liturgical traditions in a yes. in a way that um, there's just. I feel like we really have to talk about that more than anything else because it is just so central for worship let's just to do a second if you are listening to this podcast because you think it sounds cool but you have never been to a liturgical church eucharist is the sharing of bread and wine usually right now it's just bread actually right now it's often my diocese as well it's just bread right now it's being done in a lot of different ways it's being done in a lot of different ways but the most common historical expression of this um, is usually bread and wine that is shared with prayers, um, either in memory, recreation, or at, insert a whole bunch of liturgical scholars writing about this, um, some sort of pattern after the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples. Exactly. And in the liturgical traditions, it is the central act of worship. In some yep. other traditions, the preaching is the they may have communion a certain number of times a year, which is also another word for the Eucharist um, or the Lord's Supper. Um, but they may have that particular ritual sacrament a certain number of times a year, but the preaching is more important in certain traditions. In the liturgical traditions, and cer- certainly in the Anglican tradition, the Eucharist is the most important thing um, in the liturgy. There's a sermon, but it's not the focal point. Yeah. I want to move us back to the book a little bit. So how is Eucharist and disability complicated? Because I think complicated is the best word here. So I wrote, first of all, I guess the first thing I wanted to to read that she says is um, she talking about sort of an, an ideal world. She says, or an ideal setting for the, the Eucharist. She says, Quote, who is it that we remember in the Eucharist? It is the disabled God who is present at the Eucharistic table. The God who was physically tortured, arose from the dead, and is present in heaven and on earth, disabled and whole. So that is sort of, I guess, is the ideal for her of what um, 
Eucharist is about. So God in solidarity with humanity, disability as part of the image of God, um, God, the, the disabled God present there with us in that act. I cannot find this, so I cannot link it for anyone. Um, I've looked. I'm sorry. I will try uh -oh. again. So if I'm wrong, it will be in the liner notes. But I don't expect that I will be right. <laughs> or rather, I expect that I will be right. Um, right. Um, we will find it. But Well, no, this isn't in here. But I, I remember um, one of the first time I raised this question of like, what is disability theology? Having found the resources that do exist, I'm like, how did nobody put these books in my hands? Separate mm -hmm. thing. Um, but someone pointed me to an interview with a priest who's in a wheelchair. It's a wheelchair user. And talking about really finding identity in the moment in the Eucharist where we break the bread. It's a symbolic breaking of the bread because Christ's body was broken for us. Um, I'm saying like, here's the broken body. My body fits here too. Which I feel like is close to what Eastland is talking about. Right. She she talks a little bit, and I was just skimming a tiny bit um, to try to find it. But she talks about this as a repudiation of the idea of disability as being entangled with sin. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, well, here's the broken, here's the broken and resurrected Christ. So that's obviously this, this view of disability and sin conflated together obviously doesn't work. But there are often logistical struggles. Um, I was going to say, but here's where it gets complicated. Here's where it gets complicated. <laughs> yes. Um, our liturgics professor in seminary liked to say that the building always wins and church buildings um, were built with stairs and levels and widths that are not accessible often. There are other lacks of accessibility in a church building, but it is often physically hard to impossible for someone with any mobility issues to get to the place where communion is distributed, which yes. then separates them from the normative practice of receiving communion. Um, many clergy I don't think I've ever been in a parish where it's not offered that communion will come to anyone, mm -hmm. but it requires you to do something to receive that other people don't have to do. So it is often the best available practice without like destroying the building and rebuilding it, which is expensive. Right. And I get it, right. but also it's imperfect. It is an imperfect solution. Um. Yeah, it's this is very complicated, and I'm speaking as somebody that has um, is in an 1869 church building with a with a literal high altar, um, communion rail, a place where you and then you've got to go up multiple steps, walk through where the choir sits to get to the communion rail, and then you got to go down other steps around the organ. I, it is complicated to get to mm -hmm. the communion rail, and of course, we will bring communion to you at your seat. But then she says, uh, on page 113, she says, talking about these kinds of, of situations, hence the Eucharist becomes a dreaded and humiliating remembrance that we are trespassers in an able-bodied dominion. Yep. Ouch. 
And this is a real thing that plays out in my congregation, certainly in, in, in many others on a regular basis. I was going to say, I think this has been true in most, if not all places I have celebrated Eucharist. There are, I, I, it's, I'm assuming there's one or two exceptions. Um, I had one congregation that met in the nursing home, so it was all on one level there. There were other accessibility issues there that weren't physical logistics. Right. Um, But most places, and it's ableist. I mean, there's no way around that, but it was also often meant to make what was going on more visible to people. Like it was not done with malice, it was just not done in full conversation with the community of people who would need to use that space. Yeah. I'm thinking about how um, at one point during, during one part of the pandemic, gosh, everything is like a moving target. It keeps, it's changed so many <laughs> times, but at one point, one point in the pandemic, um, when we were first in person, I said, you know, we had all these rules about distancing and, and whatever. And I said, do, you know, stay put, I'm going to come to you. I will bring mm-hmm. communion to you. And I, and we were um, in our parish hall space at the time because it was a lot less complicated to get permission. We had from the diocese to use that space. It took a lot longer to come up with a plan for our main church space. So anyway, that was probably the only time when it, the Eucharist was like, truly accessible somewhere that I've been, right? Because I literally went around to each person and everybody received in the same way. Um, But people kept Mm -hmm. talking about when can we go back to the church? I want to come back to the altar rail. When can I go back to the altar rail? I want to kneel at the altar rail. Yeah. So there, this is a complicated issue because there are people who they want to be at the altar rail. They want to be close to the high altar. They want to have that experience of walking into literally walking into and then kneeling in what they feel is the most sacred part of the space closest to the altar. And yet that means other people aren't going to get to receive in the same way. And I think, I mean, we are not here to prescribe uh, a solution to this because I I don't have one. I don't have a solution for my congregation. So I'm not saying anybody else might either. I laugh a little bit because your solution of going around and distributing to each person is what I usually do back in the day when I could go visit long-term care Mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was proposed at my parish as a solution to communion, but our pews are not wide enough for me to safely do that. Like the space between each pew, I couldn't do that without basically being in every parishioner's lap (laughs) as I'm stepping over them. And that is, Many there are many issues with that, including that that is definitely too close to people in the middle of a pandemic. That's super awkward for a thousand reasons. Thousands yeah. of problems there, and I was like, "Nope, I'm gonna fall," and that will be a whole yeah. So we did not do that. They they there was, but I mean, it was an option where it was like, "Man, it would be nice if we could do that." Um, but I think the the ultimate solution is to really challenge what is normative practice and try and create, and we, I think we, we've talked about this before, try and create a community and a culture where it is 
not only appropriate, but encouraged. And there are many places to ask for things to work for you. So you do not feel weird when you come up and you're like, hey, could we actually do this? Because that will make this more accessible to me. Because that's a conversation that is ongoing in many ways. Um, but that's a lot of work. Um, it's work we should do. But even just changing to that culture is a lot of work. Um, and I know for me, um, as a disabled clergy person, which is, you know, we aren't very common, um, I'm usually trying really hard to accommodate myself, like my own yeah. needs. And I, and so I often don't do as good a job as maybe I could because I'm just thinking about other than needs of other people. Cause I'm just trying to keep my, my own um, accommodations on track. There's a, she notes um, somewhere in here. She tells a story of somebody who was trying to be admitted to seminary and was not allowed to be admitted to seminary until they proved they could perform the ritual of the Eucharist. I quote, I don't know this might be the word I'm inserting. I'm not sure. Correctly. I, I am really wishing I could be shocked about that. <laughs> right. it, what happened in, in my case is that just people ignored it. Nobody ever talked about it and I didn't know how to bring it up. Yeah. And I figured it out eventually with the support, mostly of my husband, actually. And and uh, or what was a really understanding um, field ed parish. Um, but I got some, some pushback from others about it. And, um, and the other thing I've learned that just because I use very obvious, and I talked about it in episode two, I guess, because I use very obvious accommodations at the altar. And even all these years later, I feel a little bit squirmy about my laptop on the altar. I still not hundred percent always okay with it. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate for other people to feel comfortable asking for what they need. It's yeah. not, they don't necessarily, I guess, do the math, I guess, in their head. Don't. I mean, I don't think it's something that occurs to them because we don't talk about disability in our culture. Right. Um, by the time this comes out, I'm currently finishing it, but I'll, I'll have posted an article on my, my blog um, talking about how I don't announce movement. Like I, I think the title I'm picking is something somewhat inflammatory. Like I don't tell people what to do with their bodies in worship. So mm -hmm. I don't announce sit, stand, kneel, which is really mm -hmm. common. Right. Because I have yet to find a way to talk about that that doesn't indicate a normative practice. Right. But I stopped doing that for years before I, I started doing what I do now, which is I have a whole pre-worship announcement about it where I say like, hey, this isn't going to happen. Here's why. Um, and it was because I stopped, but the parishioners didn't. They kept doing what they have always done because... Mm -hmm. They didn't know there was another option because everyone around, I don't know why, but they didn't stop until I started giving them explicit permission to do what worked best for their bodies. Um, which is part of what I was thinking of when I said like changing the culture so that that is something 
people can have it's a lot of work it's a lot of work because we're working against you know all three of those theological problems Eastland identified well, I can't say this because it'll make me a bad Christian I can't say this because I'm just so glad I can still come to church I can't say this because I I should be brought closer to God in my sufferings um, and not like Right. The way we're doing things is impairing my worship of God. Right. <laughs> Let's fix go that. Right, right. I and mean, it's really, it's it's really complicated. And I'm telling you that I know how to help myself, but I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know. And I wanted I, I want to go back to something we touched on before. Um, I think a little bit. She says earlier in the book, um, I don't know if we talked about it on mic or not, so I apologize, but earlier in the book. She talks about um, this minority model of uh, disability. So she talks about how um, disability people with disabilities, you know, had have started or started at a certain time to conceive of themselves as being part of a community, as part of a group of people um, that had some needs in common, that had some common experiences, etc. And some common experiences of discrimination and that they could be conceived of as being like other marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, one thing she says about that is she says, unlike other groups that are marginalized, let's say based on race or something else, people with disabilities generally do not have the benefit of growing up in that community and within a family or a culture where people are sort of helping them learn how to cope with the problems that might come up um, because people have been there before. Like, you know, you think about a family being raised in a certain, in a family, they, they teach you how to navigate life. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, it's like the perpetual oldest child first to go to college. What do I need to pack for college? Right. Do I need this? Do I need that? Um, Nobody told me how to do that. Like I, I asked people, but like there wasn't a pattern I had been able to observe and adapt for myself. Right. And, and um, so what happens in every area of your life. Right. So what happens with disability, um, especially when, you know, children with disabilities are not necessarily mentored by adults with disabilities. I mean, if they're lucky, they run into camp and other kinds of programs where maybe they are. Um, you know, before Pat, who we interviewed for the first portion of this, um, before he was doing what he's doing right now, he was running a mentoring program for high school and college students who are blind and low vision. And it was run and almost completely by people who successful adults who are blind or have low vision. Most of the program staff, all of the program mentors who were people who came in from, you know, for just a few hours a week who were successful in other industries. Um, but that's the exception mm-hmm. to the rule that that people uh, have that kind of exposure. And often, when our parishioners, our family members, our friends, our neighbors become uh, disabled later in life, they don't have the benefit of really having been in contact with anybody who can show them the ropes. And even if they have, it may not be someone who lives with their exact or or even their close experience. Like, oh, your knee hurts. Well, my back hurts. Well, those will have overlapping things, but they won't have 
they'll also have things that are really different where they might be like, I, I need this kind of thing and that has no relevance to what you need. And I don't know how to help you navigate that because I am fumbling through this too. Right. Yes. And the other thing that they deal with, that people deal with um, is that they, the only people they might really be talking about these, the issues they're having with might be medical professionals who are pretty much wrapped up in what we would call the medical model of disability. Meaning they look at disability as something that needs to be fixed. The goal is to return you to a a medically normal, normal as in air quotes that nobody can see. Right. Often Um, they themselves don't know a lot about the, the lived experience of disability. And it's very rare that they suggest that you seek community or some kind of solidarity with other people. So people really, um, they don't, sometimes they don't even know what to ask for because they've been given this idea that they're just supposed to struggle alone and just kind of, you know, keep trying to do this thing as long as you can, trying to get to the community rail, trying to hear the service or Mm -hmm. trying to read the bulletin. Don't, you know, maybe don't complain because it's just your individual problem. Yeah. Um, They just, the the society doesn't give them the encouragement. Um, Church doesn't give them the encouragement to think that maybe there's other options. did like about this section of laying on his hands is she acknowledges it as a hugely embodied moment which can be really transformative or can be really terrible yes she does she spends less significantly less time on it than she does on eucharist which i have no issue with both because i don't maybe she had something else to say um she did not live terribly long after writing this book so I would have, I, I, I mourned the possibility of that, I guess, but I did want to acknowledge that that was how she talked about it. it. It is something that can be either very isolating or deeply connecting. Yeah. And I, I don't, it was something I didn't engage for a very, very long time. Certainly growing up, I avoided it at all costs, but it was something that they did on you know, Wednesdays, Wednesday mornings or something or whatever, something I just avoided. I didn't want to, I don't know. I don't know who, I didn't know what that was about. I didn't want to know. Um, And I mean, this is, I think also the tension I live in. I believe both halves of these. I believe it can be an incredibly transformative time. I think it can be a deeply pastoral time. People will sometimes mention things in this sort of context that will never be talked about in any other context because we're full of shame about a lot of what our bodies do and don't do. Right. But it can also be deeply, deeply abusive. Yeah. It's something that I had to kind of, I had to come to terms with a little bit as a chaplain because I did it over and over and over and over again. And then I had a rabbi teach a workshop on how to talk with patients and their families to help them reflect on what they wanted you to pray for with them so that you weren't putting your own stuff into prayers that weren't about you. 
And that helped immensely and it changed the things I was saying. And um, then I started to see people, if it was done sensitively, people just saw it as a sign of care Mm -hmm. and God's presence instead of you better get better, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, and that's exactly the dichotomy Eastland talks about. She talks about it can either be done like and setting up this like future failure, which is almost guaranteed if you live with disability or chronic illness. I believe God heals. I also am firmly aware most people are not healed. But if you then fail to get healed, we sort of go back to that like conflation of disability and sin and like, well, what did you do wrong that this failed? But she also talks, I'm going to read a couple sentences here. In a rural rural North Dakota parish, I experienced the body care of several elderly nuns schooled in physical attendance as nurses and touched by the spirit as Christians. Their touch and tears were the body practices of inclusion. My body belonged in the church. It can also be that. It can also be, I'm not scared to touch you. I'm not scared of you or of what you represent. You are a part of us and how this is one of the ways we can care for you. Some parishes practice this a lot for people who are wondering what this is, because some parishes never practice this. I don't think I, um, I think I'd been seriously involved with the church for three or four years before I really encountered this on any sort of level at all, (laughs) not even significant, just any level at all. Mm -hmm. And it is the practice of usually prayer with laying on of hands with consent, um, sometimes just holding someone's hand, sometimes touching their head, sometimes when appropriate, um, touching uh, the body part in particular you are praying for, um, for healing or wholeness or restoration or a cessation of pain. I mean, at least I do uh, use oil. Yes. The oil is not essential, but it often accompanies it. We like our outward invisible symbols in, the, in right. our tradition. But again, it can be deeply, deeply abusive. And as we have discussed, I think earlier in this episode, don't pray for people who do not want you to pray for them. Is there anything else you want to touch on on this book? The one other thing that we would probably be remiss if we did not mention when talking about this book is she was one of the first people um, to talk about the concept, at least in a theology conversation the concept of being temporarily able-bodied yes that was a huge contribution of hers yes i i i'm not sure i think it probably came up in the disability justice movement prior to this but she brought it certainly into the church and the conversations in the church um so that is something that she does speak about in this book a lot um the understanding that if you are not now disabled, most people, if they live long enough, will experience some kind of disability. And that that's part of what it means to be human. It's not a failure of being human. It's not a... And I mean, her other distinctive introduction here is that it's not only not a failure, it is a part of humanity that God himself, herself deliberately entered into. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that it is part of the imago dei it's part of, and the fullness of being in the image of God. And that the body is in the image of God at all times in the life cycle and all different situations. 
et cetera. So no matter your age or your, what body you live in, you're part of that image of God. Um, and, and as I said, it was really, um, really key for her to say to people, you are, we are all only, if we are able-bodied, we are only temporarily able-bodied. Mm-hmm. I was really struck, um, especially on this pass through the book, of how attentive she is to the parts of the disabled community she herself was not a part of. I am not going to get this right off the top of my head, but she had a visible disability that impaired her mobility. Yes. And I I don't remember all the details, but I don't remember. Um, I will link that. I think there's a New York times obituary or of her that goes into some of those biographical details we have paid no attention to whatsoever. Um, So I I will link that in the show notes. Um, But as someone who, who does not share those experiences of disability, I felt very included and, um, and deliberately included in, in how she treated disability and theology. Yeah, I think so. And she was really clear on her parameters of who, what she was able to address and what she was not able to address. So there was a lot that's, that is not addressed. Mm -hmm. But her acknowledgements ends with the fact that this is an invitation to further work by people with disabilities and a call to all others who care to engage with people with disabilities. Um, she she knew she was not doing the definitive work. She was doing a work that would hopefully lead to other things. Yeah, I am both saddened and surprised by the fact that this is still the foundational text. And a part of me looks forward to the day when somebody picks this book up and is like, I can see why this began at all. But wow, have we spent a lot more time on it since then. for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners and to pick up some resources about faith and disability. You've heard a lot from us on The Disabled God. We do want to point you to our show notes. We have links to some of the other podcasts and some other sort of introductory material about The Disabled God and Disability Theology. Thank you very much for joining us. been listening to the accessible altar a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability hosted by robin king and stephanie shockley 
We record on the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like the Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at AccessibleAltar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at accessiblealtar at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.